Dirt and Pest, 7 o'clock. Time for Iron Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and, you know, Ira, it's supposed to be the slowest time of the year. That's why they do the SBs and stuff, you know, this past week. But, you know, between Major League Baseball, Wimbledon, and the NBA constantly saying in the news, we didn't really have a slowdown this week in sports. What a great week. I mean, it was... I was so excited. That All-Star game, the All-Star game was just okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. 4-1, 4 I mean, 4-3, but really not a close. It was just, it's just not, it's weird with the All-Star game. Mm-hmm. That home run hitting contest, I mean, best you've ever seen. I mean, just yeah. unbelievable. And maybe one of the greatest weeks of tennis ever. Um, you know, talking about Major League Baseball, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, about that a lot tonight. Yeah, I mean, going back to the Josh Hamilton 28 home run performance, which was what? 12, 13 years ago, this is easily the best home run derby I've, I'd ever seen. And the format's perfect. The format of having four minutes uh, to have competitors have a have a bracket, and then if you and then have the if you hit two four hundred forty foot home runs, you get another thirty seconds, mm-hmm. uh, and it just added to the excitement on for almost all of them. It was it was great. I mean, I was calling people to you know everybody's people that I know that weren't baseball fans. We're watching this. Yeah, no, it, it was it was must see TV, and yeah, any sports bar, you know, had it cranking, and people were getting so excited about it. Uh, gr- great show on tap tonight. Three huge guests in two different segments. First one, it's Bobby Pennington, uh, head men's and women's tennis coach at Colgate University. Uh, he's coming on at seven twenty. We've had him on before, and he's going to be a great guest. Oh yeah, Bobby's great. He's one of the best uh, college coaches in America right now, and he's going to break down Wimbledon. Uh, talk about Serena. Talk about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Uh, it'd be great to have him on. Talk about Coco Goss too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then this is going to be really funny. At seven forty, we're joined by Adam and Craig Malamut. They're from Bleacher uh, Bleacher Reports Game of Zones, and we actually taped this interview earlier. It was hilarious. But tell us a little bit about Game of Zones. If anyone just go to Bleacher Report, Google Game of Zones. They do animated. It is adult animated it's cartoons about uh, the NBA mm-hmm. and talk about the battles and it and, and puts it mashes the NBA with the whole idea of Game of, of Thrones. So it's like there's House Warriors, House Cavaliers, and the, all the characters in the NBA. But it's very funny. You don't even have to understand the NBA to to enjoy it. It's hilarious, great, and uh, I'm I'm glad the two found the people who created this and who do all the voiceovers and all the animation are going to be on the show. Yeah, and you know they. they they, they'll give you in-depth um, you know, breakdown about how they put these together, and it takes them a long time. They do it. It's pretty, they're like a two-man team. It, it's really amazing. Yeah, they only have made eight all year. In the last three years, they just do eight a year, and I was joking with them that I think they should be like 20, 25. <laughs> That's, uh, that happens at 740. Adam and Craig Malamut, very funny uh, interview we taped earlier today. You're not going to want to miss that. Ira, where have you been? Uh, nowhere exciting. This tomorrow, though, I'm going to the Marlins-Padres games. My dad's birthday, so I'm going to take him down for Marlins-Padres and uh, and probably be with like five, 6,000 people down there for the game. <laughs> five for 6,000, that's optimistic. Yeah. Um, let's talk baseball. You know, we, we touched on the home run derby a little bit earlier and how it was probably the best one, what's well, the best one I've ever seen. Do you think that the... You know, we were talking earlier that all these guys are, are, you know, for the most part, young up-and-comers. They have something to prove. And it's not, you know, we're not just getting the big names and the mashers. These guys can mash, but they're also, I don't think, you know, Peter Alonso could be walking through the, the mall right here on PGA Boulevard. Nobody would know who he is. Probably the same with Vlad Guerrero. So this is putting these guys on the map. Well, it's also putting them map, and I think that the one little tweak the NBA did, I mean, the Major League Baseball did, was to put the $1 million vote, uh, winner uh, winner's p- uh, prize. Mm-hmm. Because these players are only making three, 400000 a year. So suddenly you can triple your salary. Because most of these were, were rookies. Now, Bregman signed a larger deal, but they're, in the way baseball is done, you know, your, your minimum set minimums for rookie scale wages. So this million meant a lot. And these guys really tried. I mean, you remember the All-Star Games in the past with home run hitting contests, and they have their kids out there, and they're joking around, and it's all, it's like almost, a, it's, a, it's a joke back and forth. But they were really serious. I mean, they wanted to win this. Every single one of them really was trying. And that's what made, I think, people were the intensity level really ratcheted up and these players are great and these are good young players it was great for baseball probably one of the best days baseball's had in years you know what though you're absolutely right in, in the sense that I, I feel like you know even just five six years ago yeah it, it was more like a spectacle you'd have your kids out there David Ortiz would be coming around and fanning you with the big fan it, it was more of a spectacle 
these guys were hungry. They came out and wanted to win, which we don't always see in home run derbies. I mean, Alonzo is back underneath. I mean, he wasn't even watching. If you notice that, I mean, he was in the dugout, behind the dugout, in the clubhouse, mm. really, just like psyching himself up. I mean, looked like a fighter going out. I mean, he there was no joking around. There was no whatever. they And they you talk to these, I mean, you heard the interviews. They practiced. They they were careful who their batting practice pitchers were. Mm. This was really serious to them. And they that's why it was so it was amazing to watch. All right, Ira, well, let's get into it. I want to hear uh, all about this in case we missed one of the biggest spectacles of the year. Well, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., everyone's heard about him. He came up this year. He's a rookie for Toronto, and he really did not disappoint. And his first time, he uh, had 20, he broke, he tied Josh Hamilton's record with 29 home runs. Just an amazing performance over Chapman from the A's. And then Jock Peterson was against Bregman, Alex Bregman, who I predicted was going to win. Mm. And you thought Peter, the winner of Peterson, and you were, you were right about <laughs> Peterson. You said Guerrero, but you were right about yeah. Peterson. But Peterson beat Bregman. And then Alonzo for the Mets against Santana the Indians. Santana is the popular Indians. I mean, of course, one thing I know, I went to someone I know that went to both games. The tickets for the home run hitting contest is much higher. It costs oh, a yeah. lot more to go than than the uh, than the All-Star game. But everyone's rooting for Santana, but Alonzo actually won 14-13, but that was a bad, that was the one where they both were struggling and it looked it looked poor. And then uh, Josh Bell and Ronald Asuna, and, and a lot of people haven't seen Asuna for the Braves, this great young player, and he, he beat Bell 25-18. So, it was like a really good first round and enjoyable, and it was close because as they're getting down, it's, it, the, it benefits the person who goes second. He knows what the first mm. person has, but they seeded them. You no, know, they did, and then this is what made it interesting. Didn't you go, you know, just speaking about ticket prices, didn't you go when it was in Miami? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, you, and wasn't it like, it was like seven times the price? For well, the it wasn't seven times, derby. but that was when Judge played. Judge was great, but this was even better than, I mean, this was much better than, than even Judge, because I think just the competition level, and, and, and they were so close. Everyone was, a lot of these were, there's like seven matches, and four of them were very, what came down to a few at-bats. So and then it was the second round where we saw, uh, Guerrero face off against uh, is facing off against um, Peterson. This was a slugfest for the ages. Ba- baseball should have been so happy with just the way that one matchup played out. Well, Guerrero starts out and he again does what he did the first round with another 29 home runs and then you're thinking there is no chance Peterson I mean this is over mm-hmm. and Peterson for the Dodgers comes in and he goes and matches it ties so him. they tie it <laughs> and then they go to a one minute uh, a one minute uh, hit off and they both tie again at yeah. eight and then they have a swing off where they only have three pitchers three yeah. pitches and the first one they both hit two home runs or both hit one home run and the second one uh, Guerrero hit two home runs and Peterson only hit one but they ended up hitting 40 to 30 but it went I mean it was tremendous I mean Peterson was like behind when you could see where the pace was and then he was able to catch up and, and actually you're like there's no chance he's no chance he's no chance and then he got on a roll and they hit like one two three four five six mm-hmm. in a row it was very exciting it, it was were you bothered at all I know there was a lot of uproar on social media about um, them not letting the balls completely land because they were supposed to let the ball exit the stadium before they pitch again. They were definitely rushing it towards the end, trying to get as many at, at bats in. It doesn't bother me though. It, it a lot doesn't. of people were. It was a little, a little weird. I don't know what. The, I mean, they had umpires make the decision, so yeah. I think that was a little unusual. But I think there's a definition of where the ball lands. But I think they were cutting it really close, but they wanted to get as many at bats as possible. But it also it tires out. You, you know, they had to be careful how they were uh, they were hitting because you don't want to tire yourself out by by hitting so many. And I think that's like you said going second was good for Jock because he was able to pace himself a little bit more and then know when he had to crank it up um, So and, and then Asuna I think Asuna got tired in the second round yeah. Asuna went first and he hit 19 and just looked exhausted and that and then Alonzo that was not really as you know Alonzo had 20 and then just stopped I mean he had plenty of time that gave him a break mm-hmm. but that was I think and that benefit I mean Alonzo really the first two rounds has 20 and 14 34 and compared to what are a 70 or 80 for <laughs> Guerrero so he really did not that that's what saved him up for the final round. I believe uh, Guerrero ended up hitting 91 home runs and lost. <laughs> so funny how that goes. So so what what uh, what happened from there? Right. Well, then Vladimir he went 20 sec- he he went first and had 22. So he didn't have the 29 that uh, that he had the first two. But Alonso then. But Alonso was struggling with with a with a minute left. He only had 18 home runs and he, he used a second timeout. And then with eight with then with 18 seconds left, he hit his 23rd home run. Uh, and and won, but I mean it was like Vladimir Guerrero. First of all, it's great for the Mets because McNeil is playing so well. Mm-hmm. Alonzo, this great young ma- 
that. And it's also great for baseball because you got to see Guerrero Jr., who is who they're touting as this super duper star. His father was a was a great great player, and now to have his son come in at 20 years old and and just I mean, it seemed like Guerrero. I mean, <laughs> I swear it seemed like it was just I mean, there's he was like hitting a tennis ball. I mean, it was like every every hit was far. Uh, they said he set the record for a 490 foot home run. He had most 450 foot home runs. It's 17 450 foot <laughs> home runs and the hardest hit home run ever in the history. He had 114 miles an hour hit a home run. I mean, he was just smashing the ball. Yeah, I mean, look, that's a good analogy that it looked like a tennis ball. His swing, his stroke is perfect for the home run derby. I mean, yeah, you could tell when he got on a roll, he was just everything that came close to the zone. He was murdering. Uh, we got about just about five or six minutes until Bob Pennington, um, head men's and women's tennis coach at Colgate, calls us. Got some interesting stats on him, too. So we'll talk Wimbledon with him. Then at 740, it's Bleacher Reports, Game of Zones, guys. Adam and Craig Mulemont, they're going to join us. Um, so let's get into the, the All-Star game. It, it was... It's hard to live up to it. The pitchers are so good now, too. So let's talk uh, just for a second uh, before we get into Wimbledon about the about the game itself. The American League won. It was the uh, they won nineteen out of twenty two games. The interesting thing was one home run in the game last year. There were ten home runs, but it's becoming such a it's almost a participation contest. Each team had each pitcher pitched one inning. Uh, everyone made got to play. I, it really the game was good. They played hard. It was exciting. It was semi exciting for a game, but it is not like they leave these starters in for four or five innings. Yeah. It's everyone sort of felt like they had to get in there and play. And uh, they gave an MVP to Shane Bieber of the Indians, who just struck out the side. For one, yeah, one so <laughs> it, it wasn't really. Uh, but next year's game should be interesting. A, a lot of it is is the, it's in L.A. for the first time since 1980. So that should be an exciting time. You know, like like you said, it was, uh, and I think just the way they managed it, I think they want to have fun with it. Nothing against the Marlins or Sandy Alcantara, but this guy's not should not be pitching in in the you know the seventh and eighth innings of an All Star game. Fine pitcher, but what is he four and nine this this year with like an ERA close to five? I, I understand every team has to be represented, but when you're doing things like that, Ira, it doesn't seem to me like they're out there to win like they would have maybe a decade ago. Right, right. Um, well, we do have uh, old Bobby Pennington on the line with us now. He's a little early, but we got plenty to talk about with him. Um, Bob, why don't you tell us? Uh, uh, welcome into Iron Sports first and foremost. Uh, he is your head men's and women's coach at. Colgate, been on the show before, so he's a good friend. And I think you've got some stats here on Bobby Pennington that we we want to run down real quick. Hey, Bob, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. My pleasure, Ira. Always for you. Uh, the one you have, you're you want two. You're now you got extension of a contract. You've had 237 wins, men's and women's at Colgate. You're one of the most winningest college coaches out there, uh, and you also played at Kalamazoo and actually were part of their 78 conference championships in a row. That's <laughs> What kind of conference was Kalamazoo in where they could win 78 <laughs> conference champions? Was it a conference of two teams or what? Yeah, that is a little hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Most of the teams had guys with all with all fingers and arms that we played, <laughs> if I recall. But, um, you yeah, know, it was it's the MIAA, uh, you know, schools like Hope College, Albion, stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, it was completely – it was basically like a like a rite of passage. I mean, it, it was the long. I think it's the longest streak in any sport, amateur or pro, um, going. Um, and you weren't there for all 78, no, 78 years. <laughs> you were only four for you. So, but, um, but yeah, only four for me. I was, that, that was it. But I mean, no. I mean, it was it was a great tennis tradition. That's what appealed to me about the school. So anyway, I mean, today's a great day. I always consider it a great day was when I turned um, sports talk radio all throughout the day, and they're talking tennis. So it's awesome. And certainly they, they should talk tennis because it was uh, the last three, four days was one of the best, uh, I guess I say four days of tennis in history. Um, first of all, let's talk about Nadal Federer. Uh, the Federer played at absolutely perfect match. I mean, besides that second set hiccup, he really was able to neutralize Nadal with the serve. And Nadal, I was shocked that Nadal could not control. I mean, I just was amazed at how well how Federer served against Nadal. Yeah, that was, I mean, I, I had, I knew it was going to be tight, but I think a lot of people did favor Nadal. But like you said, the second set was a little bit of a hiccup, but I, I thought he played almost three perfect sets of tennis because Nadal, Nadal came in on like a 17-match win streak and looked tremendous at the French. And obviously he has the head-to-head over Federer still, even on grass. I mean, he's beat him on the, he's beat him on the grass. So I thought that was, that was an amazing win on, on Fed's part there. Um, 
in terms of in terms of the match, in terms of you know, it sort of was a precursor of the of the final. I mean, Federer in the that I felt like it was a good match, not the greatest of, they played, but that for the uh, the fourth set when it went to five match points. I mean, it was like there was a point where the Federer missed the overhead and the doll had another. I mean, he actually you know he had five he he converted his fifth match point. The doll was really I thought just stepped it up there. And was just had that intensity for those those rallies were tremendous, like 27, 28 shot rallies. And people have to understand on grass, that's a rally. I mean, they were hitting the ball hard. It wasn't like on clay and whatever. They were. It's like each one was almost a winner. That four set, those last two games at five four and six four, at at five three and five four, I thought were just some of the two best games I've ever seen. Unreal. And you know what? You can't help but wonder had had Nadal broken him at five all, would it be something like Djokovic where? I mean, he would have had all the momentum. I think Federer would have been thinking about those match points. I think one of those break points they all had was he missed the backhand in the net. That was, you know, a routine ball. But you can't help but wonder what would have happened after that had Nadal broken him there. People were talking about that second set. Now, remember, Federer won 7-6 in the first set, 7-3 in the tiebreaker, and then he won 6-3 in the third and 6-4 in the fourth. But that second set where he lost 6-1 to Nadal, they were calling, as Macro said, the worst set Federer's ever played at Wimbledon. Um, and you know, he, Nadal was breaking him at love. At one point, he won 20 out of 23 points. What do you think happened in that set, and how did Federer switch? Good question. I think he kind of... I think he kind of bore, you know, buried down a little bit. I think Federer lives and dies by his first serve percentage on the grass and his attacking style. And I think Nadal naturally is, you know, a great defensive counterpuncher. I, I just think the third and fourth sets he just played really clean. But it also he also returned really well too. He kind of just took over and got a little more aggressive. Nadal got a little further behind the baseline. I think tactically, and that I think really that was a big difference there. Yeah, I mean, I was watching up into this match. I was watching some of the old. They played in 2006 and seven and eight, and the and the first two times Federer uh, uh, won, and then Nadal uh, won in 2008 in a, tr in a tremendous match. But the. Uh, but in the, you watch those matches, Federer was you know playing deeper. This is a different Federer. He has a bigger racket. He catches the ball so much earlier. And even Nadal said in the press conference afterwards, it's like I couldn't, I couldn't even get into the points. No one plays like him. No one has those reflexes that is playing so up close. Uh, I mean, he's not standing at the net all the time, but standing inside the baseline and actually hitting with Nadal on rallies. Yeah, and I think that's kind of been a key to his longevity is that that newer racket that you touched on and. I mean, nobody knows how at almost 38 years old that he can do best out of five-set matches, seven best out of five-set matches in a row. And he didn't even look like he was really sweating even in the finals, even in the fifth set. Like, I mean, the, the stamina, the physical and mental stamina is just incredible. So, I mean, I, every time people are counting him out, I mean, I, I don't know how much more he has in him, but I think at least a, a couple more years. Yeah, then we get to the final. And, I, I mean, on Sunday, I, mean, I was like, I mean, every I was like, I was so psyched for this match in Federer and Joker. And Joker played Agut uh, in the semifinals. So he had an easier semifinals. I mean, Agut's a nice player. Uh, took a set off Joker. But clearly, Federer has the emotional. And, and really, how many people can actually be? I think I saw a stat where the only person to ever beat uh, Nadal and Djokovic in a tournament, uh, in a, in a five-set tournament, would, was uh, while Rinka once beat both of them. But, it, I mean, he comes and beats Nadal in, in, a, in, a, just a, in a great match. And then has to play Joker next in just 48 hours. Uh, uh, again, Djokovic was a favorite coming into this, but uh, it was just what a what a what a final match. Yeah, that was just incredible. I mean, I caught the whole. I was tuning in because I was running my Nike camp at Colgate, but I was tuning in constantly on my phone. And then the fifth set, I got to watch the whole entire fifth set. Federer got down the break at four two, and it looked like that was it. But then he broke right back. But then, I mean, I couldn't even believe it. Eight seven on Federer served the forty fifteen, and I think. No matter how much he's won, that's just going to haunt him because those were just two weird points at 8-7, 40-15. I mean, the one was an unforced error in the forehand. He seemed kind of surprised. And the next point, I like how he came forward to the net, but I just don't think enough was on his approach shot. And Djokovic just kind of made him pay. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a weird match because Djokovic won. 
the three tiebreakers. And, uh, and, and, and that, and that was, I mean, if you added up the points in the games and everything, I mean, Federer won 14 more points than Djokovic. And actually, I mean, he wasn't even, they did, Djokovic didn't have a break point on, Fe, on, on Federer until like three and a half hours into the match in the fourth set. Uh, but the first set, I mean, Federer is, you know, cruising along, winning that first set. And then they go to tiebreaker, but Djokovic was in those tiebreakers. It just seems like he was able to win those key points. And, and, and in the, in the tiebreaker, it's, you know, first one to seven, win by two and you just he got it's just ever like a three 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 two that first set and also the third set and of course the fifth set winning those tiebreakers was just was just crucial uh for him and in terms of talking about tiebreakers what do you think Djokovic's uh strategy why was it so successful that he's won he won all three yeah that's a really good point i i think he just kind of got tough and kind of bared down in the tiebreaker. I mean, his returns are so good too. I th- I don't think Federer is getting any free points in those in those tiebreakers. And I also think that Djokovic just kind of kind of willed himself, where Federer got a little loose in those, and just he, he just so mentally tough. Djokovic to return so well, he just makes you pay. Um, so no, that I was. I mean, I, I'm a little surprised he won all three, and I think Federer is probably reflecting on that um, today, and, and probably will be for a long time. Yeah, I mean, in the it was interesting. Federer again. The second set was a weird set. In this case, Federer actually won. So he loses the first set seven six, but then comes back and uh, Djokovic fell like in that first game on the ground, and he falls all the time in the grass. But it seemed like it affected him because he he then uh, he 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 just didn't play well. Federer breaks at fifteen, and Federer was breaking Djokovic at love in fifteen, and uh, and was just winning I mean, winning six one over Djokovic, and and actually uh, Djokovic double fault in his last game. He just double faulted. Uh, and, in love. It didn't win a point. So after that second set, I'm thinking, boy, Federer really, I mean, I thought, I thought it was the, you were nervous about Federer on that first set, losing the first set, but coming back and winning six, one, I just thought so much momentum, but Djokovic again was able to stay, you know, hang in the match in that third set. Do you think Djokovic just gave up that second set or was he, it was just a situation where Federer just played perfect. I think a little, I think a little more of him giving up, frankly, or just conceding it, knowing that he was going to be, you know, knowing that he was going to be, you know, mentally tough and ready to go and, and physically ready to go in the last three sets. I, my opinion is, you know, he just kind of let that, once he was down one break, I think he just kind of let the let the insurance break slide a little bit um, and let that go. Because, I mean, keep in mind, there's 15,000 fans cheering against him as well. I mean, I mean, not literally in the stadium, but, I mean, like around, like, Henman Hill. I mean, everybody was against him. I mean, so... I give him a lot of credit for his mental toughness because that's 16 grand slams now. Right. Four of the last five. I mean, so he's he could very conceivably break the record. I don't, I don't, it wouldn't shock me at all. And then we talk about that fifth set. I mean, they changed the rules. The rules were they just played win by two. That's usually the rules of Wimbledon. But then they were nervous because we talked about last year, the, all the matches with Isner and Anderson and like what just went lasted so long that the rule was the games get to 12-12. If it's 12-12, then you play a tiebreaker 12-12, not at 6-6. And, um, but, but in that fifth set, Djokovic was up for two and, uh, had a break and was, and, and, but then Federer actually be able, was able to break back and then hold. And then, and then I thought, I thought when he broke back at four, two, it reminded me when he played against Nadal in Australia two years ago and Nadal had that yep. lead in the fifth set. And I thought, boy, Federer now has it. And Djokovic did it. That's the first time you saw where Djokovic like hit a microphone. I mean, he sort of got a little upset and I thought Federer was going to take it there, but Djokovic was able to break, break back, uh, you know, and be, that was just, that was amazing. That was amazing. Cause I, I agree with you. Once Federer was down for two and broke back, I was with you. I thought, you know what? At this point, when it was four three and it was back on server, that I'm going to give it to Federer at this point. And then he breaks. Um, he breaks him at. He breaks him at seven seven. You know, with that with the cross court passes, and then he gets so he's serving for the match, and Federer gets those two aces to go up forty fifteen. So he just served like the. I mean, he he was fifteen all. He serves two like rocket aces, and you're like, okay, Federer's going to win. Like it was really like I was as you asked me, ninety nine percent sure Federer's going to win. He just had two monster one hundred and twenty five mile an hour serves that Djokovic didn't even touch. But then he plays two poor points, and and that was I mean he those are, I mean think how many points Federer's played his entire career, millions of points probably. He'll, those two points are going to on him forever no I, I you know what I, I said the same thing like for even though he's won 20 grand slams and even though all, all he's accomplished there's no way he's ever going to be able to get that out of his head um 
just because of the fact that here it is on his favorite service grass. Like you said, he was serving huge. And all he really had to do was just one more forceful serve. I mean, I think he had a decent serve at 40-30 to set him up for a forehand. But, I mean, I think that just kind of spiraled quickly four points in a row for Djokovic. But I think your odds, like you said, 95 to 99% he wins that game every time. And then I just like so, Federer. I, I love Federer's ability to just hang in there. Even at 11-11, then he was down 40 love. And, and then he t- on Joker serve and then Djokovic, then he, t- he t- deuce and it was like one of those deuce ad, you know, one of the, one of the longest games of the match was at 11-11 that Djokovic, because if, if he wins that game, then he could again have another chance to serve out and win and win 13-11. But, uh, but, but Djokovic was able to hold and just take it to, you know, to a tiebreaker. I know. And that was an amazing game too, because like you said, 40 love the Djokovic assumed the easy hold and then. Federer definitely had chances there, too. And I think the tiebreaker just kind of spiraled quickly. I think he got down 2-1, a mini break. He missed the half volley. And then I think it just kind of it kind of ran it kind of ran away from him a little quickly from there. But, man, I don't know. I mean, I, that could, could that be his last best chance to win a major? We'll see. But, I mean, you, you know, match points in the final, you'll take, you'll take him every time <laughs> on his serve. Right. And, and the one – just one point in the tiebreaker that was weird is what it was six – it was like six three, so this is match points, and the umpire or the ref, the, one of the lines person called the ball out, but it was in, and then Federer then hit a shot that went into the net, and I think that I mean if they would have, but but Federer if if they wouldn't have called it out, Federer probably would have won that point because it distracted him. So they said out, and then he just hits the ball in the net, but then they looked at and replayed it. I felt Federer got. I mean, he's not going to complain about a bad line call because he was down in the set anyway in the tiebreaker. But I thought that was. I mean, for a linesman to make a, it was an easy call. It was so it wasn't one of those fast shots. It was a one right on the line to make a mistake like that. I think you know that was it was weird how that ended those that last point. Yeah, it was a really strange, really strange finish to the whole thing. Um, Djokovic just kind of. A couple times, Djokovic just kind of laughed or kind of like smiled in the tiebreaker because it just there's just some weird stuff happening at the end. But yeah, I think Federer just kind of. I mean, I think it was in the back of his mind from eight seven on forty fifteen. He had to have been thinking about those chances, no question. Uh, but like you said, he held it together though, and you know it would figure that the year that they go twelve twelve tiebreaker that'd be the finals. I mean, the odds of that are also pretty slim. So before we let had you they play, had they played it out, who knows what would have happened. Right. That that would be that was you know, but it seemed like Federer but you know, they both supported it. The weird thing is that Federer did say, Look, I think there should be a tiebreaker. So it wasn't like Federer's like, I've been against the tiebreaker forever. Federer said there should be a tiebreaker. So you know, and they knew what the rules were going into it. And and Federer was so gracious in his interview. I mean, again, he's the classiest guy in the world. He loses a four-hour match. It was like, you know, blows this. And he is like giving that interview on the court. I mean, I, how many other players? I mean, the New York Knicks lost a summer league basketball game and didn't even shake the hands of the Raptors. <laughs> I mean, so the class, I mean, when your players play and they and they show they're, they're bad after a loss, you say, look at the class that Federer showed by staying on the court, giving an interview, joking around, like so professional and just so great. What a, I mean, he's he is class personified. Yeah, and I think that's why his. I mean, I don't think Djokovic is as much as a, of a villain as much as people just love Federer, and and for good reason, like you said. I mean, he. I mean, you would have thought at the end that. Can you imagine even Macaroe? I mean, I can't even imagine like or you know or some of the past guys as far as had they lost that kind of a situation. I mean, I'm sure they would have just blown right by the reporters at the end. We're talking to Bob Pennington, the head coach of Colgate women's and men's team. And just one last question before we get to where we where we let you go. But uh, Serena, uh, it, you know, it, the women's final, the semifinals and finals were none of the sets were close. I mean, it was like I you know excited about that, but Halep just in fifty six minutes. I mean, it's over. I mean, I I was I had plans on Saturday to watch it for a couple hours, and it's over in fifty six minutes. Serena for a third final in a row. She's trying to tie Margaret Court's record, but she loses in in a final. What? What do you think happens with Serena in these final, these last three finals, where she's really not even competed well? Yeah, that makes no sense to me. I thought I thought it was going to be a challenging match, but I would have taken Serena straight up. But you you had, you make a good point. I mean, Kerber last year, Osaka, and now I don't know if it's the stress of breaking court's record or the fact that her first Grand Slam title after becoming a mom or or whatever. But she's definitely. I mean, all three of them have been straight sets, and she just she's played great up through the entire six rounds before that. 
has to be a mental thing, which doesn't really make sense given her career at yeah. all. I mean, I watched her in the semifinals. She was moving great, hitting great. She had a great max, match against Risk. But I think the one thing Serena should do is I think she should play a match beforehand because she starts out these, like, those first three, four games, she wasn't even moving. I mean, she her feet looked like she wasn't moving at all. And Halep is running around the court, hitting great shots. But uh, but it was like, it was just amazing. I mean, understand this. Williams had 27 unforced airs for the match. Three for Halep. Twenty-seven to three. That's that's crazy. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's insane. That's insane. I mean, a, a three a three unforced errors in a final, a Grand Slam final, let alone against Serena. I mean, that's just give it to her. Now that that's crazy. So I guess it's got you excited for. I mean, the the U.S. Open is coming up in 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 August in September in New York, and and I guess you would be saying that Djokovic is the favorite for this. I mean, again, Federer, Nadal are going to be there, but it's going to be. I mean, Djokovic's won four of the last five majors and is playing great. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens at the U.S. Open. Yeah, still the big three. I don't think there's anybody close to these three guys. I mean, and you know, it's just it's amazing. It's still going on like this, but I don't know who you could predict who would break through to actually win the whole thing besides one of those three. I just don't see it. Well, Bobby, thanks a lot. Once again, you're talking to, we're talking to Bob Pennington of uh, Colgate women's coach and good luck this year. You're, you're going to, you're, what year is this for you at Colgate now? All right. This is, this is number 14. Oh this my is, gosh. This is, this, this is a long reign here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I appreciate you coming on Iron sports and we'll certainly give you a call maybe later in the summer. We can get your opinions on the U S open. All right, I look forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me. 734, Zyron Sports, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Just about five or six minutes till uh, we're joined by the Game of Zones guys from Bleacher Report. It's Adam and Craig Malamut. Extremely funny interview that we uh, taped earlier. I don't know if you heard this, but um, the guy, Roberto uh, Batista Agut, his bachelor party was scheduled for doing this. He didn't even think he was going to be in the semifinals. He had to move his bachelor party. But they, they showed up at the match. So they had yeah, a good he had time. His... <laughs> he had a great attitude. He was fun. He was having a lot of fun. I mean, he was he's a he's a great player. But it was neat to see the at the Wimbledon with Kate Middleton and Meghan mm-hmm. Markle. It is the Wimbledon is I mean, it was ten thousand dollars for the Nadal Federer match. I really? think it's the, in my mind it was the most expensive match uh, to, uh, sports sporting event ever. But I would have loved it. next year. I'm going. So just that, I'm making that <laughs> statement right now. I'm going next year. Um, okay, Ira. Before we get into uh, the game of zones, guys, they're all about NBA. So are we here? And another trade goes down where it's just like, what is going on in this league? It just gets crazier and crazier. I love the trade. I love it. I mean, Russell, I don't get why so many people hate it. That's what I was shocked. I said, Russell Westbrook's going and teaming with James Harden. I go, there will be fit problems. They both control the ball. Their stats that say they both control the ball more than any other players in basketball, one and two. Um, they like to dribble, control the ball. But I said, this is going to be a great trade. And then I look at everyone and says, terrible, worst trade in the world. This is awful. This is terrible. Again, the uh, Rockets. The team still got better on paper, and that's all that should matter here. Right. The Rockets had Chris Paul, who is four and a half years older than Westbrook and is aging, and he doesn't. And the other problem is he doesn't get along with Harden, and they hate each other. So uh, they were able to trade Harden for Westbrook, who's now had three straight years of a triple-double, averaging 10 rebounds, 10 assists, and 31 to 25 points a game. Two years ago, he was the MVP of the league. And really, the only problem, his stats are perfect except for he went from foul shooting from 80% to 65% but he plays 36 minutes a game this guy plays Westbrook plays 82 games almost every single year and the last three years he's at 80 games and Harden the same thing they play I love this I love the trade because I think they played together when they were at Oklahoma City for three years but Westbrook was a starter Westbrook is one year older and Mm -hmm. Harden was the backup and then Harden left Oklahoma City they traded him away but what I see with this is I think and Harden wanted this this is a trade that Harden says get Paul out of here I don't want him here anymore and they brought in Westbrook and he wanted him but I think he's going to let Westbrook have the ball and I think Westbrook's going to produce, and he's either going to dunk the ball or pass to someone. Westbrook's going to have 20 assists next year. And I think another thing that helps is the way the NBA is going. Westbrook averages 11 to 11 rebounds a game. He's the best rebounding guard I've ever seen in basketball. And he's going to get the rebound. They don't need to have any big men at all. And you know what? If you have like Shaquille O'Neal, which he doesn't play, or, or Anthony Davis, or any big guy you're talking about, they don't care. The Rockets are like, yeah, get your two points. We'll foul your shooter, but we're going to go down and hit a three. With Westbrook driving, Paul never drove like that. Westbrook's going to drive. He's either going to dunk the 
football or you're going to have Tucker, you're going to have uh, Eric Gordon or Harden, and they're going to be single covered. So on the wings, I think it's going to be perfect. And also, they're going to have plays where Westbrook dribbles down, Harden slides over to the top of the key, and, they, and Westbrook just p- passes it back over his head. I am so excited to watch the Rockets. I think this was a great trade. I really think this makes them the second best team in, in the West. I, I'm the only person alive, I think, that thinks that, except for their general manager. But I love this trade. Let's talk more about the rankings. Because n- now, I'm having a really hard time with this, Ira, how I'm going to rank the Western Conference. You assume the Lakers are in. So that means one playoff team's coming out. I don't really know who that's going to be. We we assume um, New Orleans is going to be a better team, too. So who is there that's not a playoff contender? It's I Memphis think Oklahoma, and, I think Oklahoma and, City. Oklahoma City goes yeah, out. Yeah, Oklahoma City is going to bail out now. They're going to be out. And, and I, 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 the more I keep thinking about it, I think there are the eight teams. I think I think New Orleans could be better, but I still think that the Spurs and Golden State and Portland are the bottom three those are a really good bottom three teams. I think they've got eight, but I like uh, I, I do like uh, I do like Utah. I mean, I'm sorry, I do like uh, Denver. I think Denver is going to have the best record. Now, I don't know if they're going to make it to the finals. I don't think they will, but they're the team that brings everybody back next year. Mm-hmm. And I think Djokovic is going to Djokovic is going to prove tremendously and be great. I like the Rockets now as number two. I thought this was just a game changing move, and um, I, I like the Lakers at three, the Clippers at four, uh, Utah at five, and then Portland Spurs and Golden state but i i hope you know i was listening to sports talk radio today and a lot of people were saying well load man i hope these teams play they say oh it's smart now only to play 60 games but i hope that these guys play 80 games because because as a fan you want to go watch the teams play and i was i'm concerned about how people say oh it's so smart they're not playing and those things like that and when you watch these tennis players play uh i mean i think that's what that I just love the fact that you know you see Nadal and Federer, Djokovic, how they play and how they play hard, and they're playing and they're health. I just I just think playing games is important. <laughs> and you know what? For us being you know in the, the Miami market, what do we get to see the Lakers once, maybe twice a season? So it, it'd be awful if LeBron <laughs> sits out those games. We want to be able to go and see these Western Conference superstars, you know, here in the Eastern Conference. They're saying that people are going to stay up for these games. I have a. Tr- I know you stay up all night because you're crazy, but I can't sort games at ten thirty at night. They're going to have to. That that's a great point. I heard that talking about. They the NBA is going to have to do on the weekends. They're going to have to move those games at, at, at early, but there's going to have to be something that they're going to have to really try to get because the West is so loaded that they're going to have to try to get them in, uh, in East. But um, but I, I I really believe that there has to be something to try to try to make it that way. Ira, the British Open is this weekend, and I love the British Open because it's it's always kind of crazy. Anything can happen. It's usually rough conditions. What are you thinking about uh, the British Open? Well, I know is that after Federer lost, I took the loss hard. Like it was like a Steeler <laughs> loss to me. Penn State loss. Like I don't usually take losses hard. It really affected me. And my my girlfriend goes, you know, she cheers me up. She goes, she goes, don't worry, you got Tiger in four days. I'm like, okay, I got Tiger to root for, and I'm like, okay, they're not really counting. I don't. Again, they're not. Oh, Tiger played bad. He's this and that, but I still like. I mean, I like Tiger in, in the British Open. I think. I mean, it, it's interesting, but uh, in terms of you know, again, that's the, the level playing field of Brooks Kepka, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson. I mean, Rory's a nine to one favorite. They the book they really like yeah. them. The fact that's in Ireland, those things. But Tiger's caddy, remember, is from Ireland, so that's a benefit that he has in terms of trying to do things. But uh, uh, but I, I think it'll be very interesting to see what uh, what it, it's in the pairings that Tiger. Has He's with Patrick Reed. That's a weird pairing, and and you have to get up early to watch this uh, to yeah. watch this because it's it's uh, a Tiger tees off at five a.m. on Friday. But uh, I'm excited. We're going to talk about it next week. But it'll be it's the last major. That's weird to say it's the last major in the year. And and, and let's see if Brooks Kepka again can can come through. Uh, I'll be rooting for him, but I, I think you're right. I mean, getting eighteen to one odds on Tiger Woods in a major that's usually something you you want to throw a shekel or two on. Uh, Ira. Uh, Manny Pacquiao, this guy loves to fight, and we're going to get to see him on Saturday. I, we talked about it last week briefly, and we're going to talk about it next week. If it's a great fight, I'll bring a boxing analyst on to, to go cover it. But uh, uh, Thurman is uh, one of the best fighters in the world right now. He's 29-0. He has great wins over Sean Porter and Danny Garcia, and this is a super welterweight fight. Pacquiao is actually the favorite in this fight. This is a really good fight. Thurman needs Keith Thurman needs to win this fight to validate himself. This is one of those defining people talk about fights for a long time. I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, this is one of those fights where if you look at the odds, it is Pacquiao is a very slight, very slight favorite. And I think it's going to be a great fight. It's got on pay-per-view and it's the last big fight in a while. So I'm excited by that. And also, 
it's sad today that Pernell Whitaker, who when I grew up is one of the best fighters I've ever seen. Uh, he's a fourth weight class champion, Olympic gold medalist. He uh, had one of the greatest fights of all time against uh, Chavez Jr. in the Alamo Dome, which was a draw, and uh, lost to De La Hoya, but it, really a great fighter. Got hit by a car in Virginia Beach. Crazy. at 55 years old, mm -hmm. hit by a car and killed. Uh, and really one of the arguably maybe top 20, 30 fighters in the history. Yeah, I had never heard of him, and I'm not being as big into boxing as you, but uh, you know, now that everything's coming out about how successful this guy was, he really was a big DLI. Um, this is going to be really fun. We've got Adam and Craig uh, Mulemit. They're from Bleacher Report's Game of Zones. Give us a little information on who these guys are before we start this interview. Well, we're, we, we're going to start the interview, and the, we, they went through their, their background. But I think what they've done is if anybody wants to watch the Game of Zones, it, you, as I said, you don't need to be an NBA fan to enjoy it. They have taken animation and made it fun. They make light of the players, and they show the scenes. And as they said, they don't, they're not talking about the games. They're talking about all the backstage, like the Game of Thrones, with all the, uh, the moves the players are making, the thoughts, the general managers, everything like that. But in a way that, you, as I said, it's just entertaining. If you knew nothing about the NBA and you'd watch it, you'd find it fun. And they are, they are admittedly, one of them, uh, I think Craig said, he didn't even know who he... he he didn't even know who Steph, Steph Curry, Curry was. was. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they have, and they're now becoming, they have millions of, uh, every time it breaks, they have, it's on YouTube, it's followed, you know, a million hits. Uh, they are talked about by everyone. All the NBA players know, they're talked about on TNT, and they've really created this great series. And they've only had like eight, there's eight, eight, um, eight, uh, whatever, episodes. Eight episodes, yeah. Uh, every three years, or every year, there's eight episodes they've had the last three years. So I really enjoy it. I find it a lot of fun, and uh, and it's anybody who's a big NBA fan has to watch. It. You know, they they had mentioned to us, and they're going to tell us here. You know, it might be a little while before the next uh, episode of Game of Zones. Well, they're so, doing soccer now. Yeah, so there's EPL. They're they're focused on, but maybe you got to watch the real Game of Thrones series now and catch up on all that. So yeah, make someday the references. I'll catch up to that. <laughs> oh, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Bobby Pennington so much for coming by. Also, now you get to hear from Adam and Craig Malamud from Bleacher. Game is zones. Ira, where are you headed this week? Well, I'm going to go to the Marlin game tomorrow, so it'll be exciting to be down there and see uh, Machado play and uh, and everything with the with the with the, they're playing the Padres. But um, and just get a sense in terms of what the feeling is. I, I can't wait to see what the feeling is with the Marlins and how the year and, and what fans are saying. Let's go ahead and hear from Adam and Craig Malamut from Bleacher Report. 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's Mike Balsamo here. It's Ira on sports. And with us right now, very special guests. Two of them, actually. It's Adam and Craig Malamut. You know them from Game of Zones on Bleacher Report. Guys, thank you so much for popping by Ira on sports. Deeming us important enough to have a conversation with. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam and Craig, I want to tell you something. I am the biggest fan of yours, um, and I'm just mad at you guys because you put out like eight a year. Like, why can't you? There is so much going on in the NBA right now. There, I don't know why it's not coming out per hour. Like, I just, I don't. <laughs> I get, I'm depressed. Um, and when I, whenever you come out with a new one. I sit, I actually watch the rest of the season. Like, I don't, someone says, oh, the new Game of Zones dropped. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not, I can't just watch it on my iPhone. I have to sit in front of my computer. I have to have silence. I have to enjoy it. It's like eating a great steak. Uh, it's eating a great meal. You want to just savor it. I can't just rush it and watch it on my iPhone. So I, you guys are, do an amazing job. Tremendous. Anyone who hasn't seen Game of Zones, just go Game of Zones Bleacher Report. Uh, even if you don't know anything about the NBA, I think you'd love it. Love it. Because I've shown this to people who don't... Like, I was trying to explain what happened to Toronto. And I say... And I'm trying to explain. And I say, just watch this Game of Zones thing. This will show you everything that happened with, with Kawhi Leonard, uh, DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry. But anyway, guys... Give us your background a little bit. You're from one of you worked for Jimmy Kimmel. The other is an astrophysicist, and somehow you're making the greatest NBA content out there right now. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying all that. Um, that's you know that's we why we do it. You know that's for the praise. Um, but uh, but thank you. Um, so uh, this is Adam. I I worked for when we say I say work for Jimmy Kimmel. I worked there for like three weeks. So I don't want to get too crazy. Uh, 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 and think that I uh, I trained for years under Jimmy Kimmel's tutelage to learn comedy. I was just there for three weeks, and actually it was being there and me not loving it that I was like, you know, I'm going to teach myself how to animate. Screw this. And uh, and so yeah, that that was my experience in LA. And then Craig, if you want to talk to uh, yeah, I uh, I always loved science 
growing up. And so I thought I pursued like a degree in astrophysics and I uh, was going to possibly do something in science related. And then uh, right when I was graduating, Adam called me up and he's like, Craig, I just sold the sports cartoon. So uh, fly out here to L.A. and let's, let's do this thing. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'll take a chance on this. So I, I flew out and joined Adam, kind of just dropped everything. Uh, and, you know, we ended up making Game of Zones. And, yeah, and, before, and before that, the, Craig, the cartoon that Craig flew out for was called Sports Friends on Yahoo. That was our first uh, venture into foray into sports animation. Yeah, people have to understand this is not animation like for cartoons for kids. This is just an amazing animation that you, it's just, I mean, it's it's like Simpson almost like in terms of the quality and the content and the funniness and everything. Um, so your first animation was Chase Utley and Ryan Howard talking to each other on a bus. And somehow you came from those two characters, baseball players from the Phillies, because you guys are from Philadelphia, to to somehow now creating Game of Zones for the NBA. So talk about the transition from just doing this sports friends conversation to going into game of zones you know it's interesting because it's a lot of it is just the, the meandering path of of life and it's it started um you know this is adam i've i've always been a, i'm probably a bigger sports fan than craig and i've always been a big philly fan and i just had this idea of doing this cartoon about like baseball players just talking about like I felt like base, like professional baseball players like do they ever talk about just home runs like there's so much nuance in sports if you're in it do, do, do the players ever take a step back and just say like oh I love hitting home runs it's the best feeling and uh, and so decided to turn that into a cartoon and it got a little bit of traction in some of the Philly blogs and then I was like okay let's make a few more of these and so I made a few more uh, did one did one with um, Ryan uh, uh, Ryan Braun and uh, Prince Fielder, and they were lying in, in the field talking about, uh, you know, if they could hit a ball to the moon, like literally <laughs> hit a baseball onto the moon. And, um, you know, these high-level sports, going into the nitty-gritty of sports conversation. And then we did one about uh, uh, Back with the Heat, uh, which was uh, LeBron and Dwayne Wade talking, and it was about LeBron craving a championship, how he was just craving it. And, uh, and that was obviously before he won one. And uh, and that like and then a friend of mine who worked at Yahoo was like, hey, let's turn this into a uh, into a series. So we made the series Sports Friends, and it was just athletes talking about like cute little things together. And that kind of got uh, and Craig joined, you know, midway through working on that show. And at that point, we just kind of became known for making sports stuff. And then Bleach Report came to us, this guy Ben Spector, and was like, hey, we want to do a sports thing with you guys. And at the time, Craig and I were watching a lot of Game of Thrones, and so we pitched this idea to match up Game of Thrones with sports, and it was we pitched it initially as, as football, and then it turned into NBA, and uh, and then we're just that was the next project, and we're like, all right, if we're going to do this, let's make it good, and uh, and here we are, years later, and many mm -hmm. episodes of Game of Medieval Basketball cartoon later, we find ourselves sitting here talking to you, Ira. <laughs> Well, but in seasons one, two, and three, and I have to admit, I'm late to a lot of things. Like I, when I was in law school, people watched a show called Seinfeld on Monday nights, and I said, "Why would you watch Seinfeld when there's Monday Night Football on?" And they would have it on like two different TVs, and I thought they were crazy. But now, of course, I've watched every Seinfeld a hundred times. But it took me about three, four years to get into Seinfeld. So I have to admit, I missed your first two seasons, even though you only had three episodes each season. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I picked it up in the third, and now I'm completely addicted i mean totally but uh but i guess you you started out those and tell about you started you do this the first three seasons just three but it seems like now you picked it up to eight a season in, in seasons four five and six should we expect that qual you know, that number going forward or maybe like 16 20 30 something like that so i will explain the challenge in making 16 to 20 because we would love to make 16 to 20 but the, cha the challenge there is that part of the reason I think it is so good is because we take forever to make these things. And, like, we're so careful about everything, and the animation's so complicated, and we, like, we want everything to be perfect. So I think that going up to – if we were to go up to more episodes, and there's – because there's so many things to cover, I would worry that, like, it would get stale and get old and it wouldn't be as good. So um, – if, if there was a way to make 20 episodes and maintain the quality and us to not like be working 24 hours a day, I think that we would do that. But we have yet to discover the, uh, the panacea for that. 
Yeah, uh, we, we write, voice, direct it, and uh, that's like a, a lot of bandwidth. And so and it takes eight weeks to make a single episode. Um, you know, it's like two and a half to three weeks just to write and record it and stitch all the audio together. And then we have to board it and all those things and then design each of these characters. And they all look photorealistic. And so, you know, if you want to have multiple angles of a photorealistic drawing, it's going to take artists many days you so know. I, I, it's, it's like football like i want to i wish the nfl season was 50 games but i recognize all the players would be dead by the end of the <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah well they're trying to play 18 their, their goal was to play 18 and they're, they're getting pushback on the 18 instead of 16 but. right exactly so it's sort of for us too i think that like uh we go we go and say even by the end of the eight episode season i don't i have no idea what's funny anymore i just <laughs> It's like just every time you hear NBA story, like I anything NBA, I'm like, okay, how does this translate to medieval Game of Thrones? And I don't even know what's interesting. I just lose my mind a little bit. So we need to, we, in order to get, make sure those eight episodes are good, we need to take a little bit of a break. Um, and, but and to your other question about how it went from four or and what it initially was to it kind of kept growing is that it started as just a little viral video. It was just a one-off. And then it did really well. And then to like make another one. And we're like, okay, so we made another one. And then they're like, okay, that was good, too. Do you guys want to come in-house? So we came in-house to Bleacher Report, and it became like a spring tradition. But because we were still literally doing everything, soup to nuts, the animation, the backgrounds, the voices, it just took a long time. And uh, it was after consistent success with the show, Bleacher Report was like, okay, we really got to find a way to do more of these. And they brought in some, uh, some people to help us scale up. And now we're fortunate enough to work with a talented team of, uh, how many animators That's we have? 20, we have like 22 people total. It's yeah. like 15 or so are animators. And uh, real TV producers and uh, <laughs> and an animation production manager. And so uh, when once we found like we slowly and once we found find the right people, we were able to scale things up a little bit. And uh, and we've been fortunate enough to do that. Yeah, it's also made the art. You can see the artwork has like drastically changed from when Adam and I did the whole thing. Like the first couple seasons, it's like it looks completely different than it does now, and that's a testament to our team. There's a lot more movement now. Yeah, we have horses, and you know, there was a goat dunk last season. Like Adam and I could not animate a goat dunking a basketball. That's for sure. So we're talking to Adam and Craig Malamut, the founders, creators, CEO, president, or whatever of Game of Zones, the greatest thing I've ever seen on the internet. But um, the question would be is, so so Steve Kerr, the Golden State Warriors, approaches you because he wants to motivate the team. Like the Warriors needed any more motivation, but I guess that that right. is what, you know, they besides Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, it was your five-minute uh, five animation that motivated them to win their titles. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yes. A lot of a, a lot of there's a misconception that signing Kevin Durant is the reason that they had the best regular season in history. But uh, wait, no, so that, that was, that was oh, wait, your report. Wait, did we do it for? We, oh, we, we did, did it for both. Yeah, oh, no, 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 Sorry. sorry what happened was we made them the cartoon. Then they won 73 games. Right. Kevin Durant wasn't on the team. We can take full credit. Right. The super team that we yeah. did. Team. So yes, um, it actually was our cartoon that. Ha that inspired them to win all the games that they did. Uh, and then it, then the cartoons magic ran out in the finals against LeBron. Yeah. Um, but uh, what happened with that was that, yeah, I, I guess um, uh, Steve Kerr was a fan and he wanted to, something fun to kick off the season. And what's, what's really interesting about that team and that project that we worked on, you really get a window into the culture of Golden State. And, you know, like they have a lot of – like. I don't know if it's still true. Like, you know, we hear things that indicate that things got a little tense there. But at least back then when we were doing the cartoon and the first one, like Craig said, was the year before they signed Durant, um, is that, like, they were just loose and fun. And Steve Kerr gave us all these inside jokes, stuff that I'm like, are you sure you would be okay with us putting that in the cartoon? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he was so friendly and fun. And, and, like, they basically we made this thing which basically roasted the whole team. He played it for them at the team dinner to kick kick off the season. There's a video which you can see online of like Steph. Steph is like laughing. He's like chewing on his napkin like it's a mouth guard, and the whole team's cracking up. And it just it was to me a reflection on the like the looseness of that team that they can just have that much fun and laugh at themselves and yet be the best team in the league. You know, so um, so that that it was cool to be a part, even if it's a small part of the story of of that dynasty. Yeah. And what's so great is about you, you picked a sport that, that it's almost, it is the game of, zone, of thrones because you have uh, these houses that you call them house warriors and house ca cavaliers, but the, the players are so dynamic. And I mean, that's what I'm saying is this past 
two weeks. Leonard uh, defeating, or the, you know, in the playoffs, Leonard defeating the Sixers in Milwaukee, but then the entire Durant Warriors saga, uh, Magic quitting the Lakers. I mean, you have Leonard and George teaming up, Harden, Paul Westbrook. I mean, there is just so much content out there because these players are so just dynamic and manipulative and moody and their personalities, which is great about it. Yeah. Yeah, the season, like, they, there's just no, uh, and like the, the NBA just constantly generates more and more drama. It's it's, unbel- it's unlike any sport, in my opinion. Well, I think also what makes it so Game of Thrones-like is that Game of Thrones, although you know it became about the battles towards the end, um, it really is about the shuffling and politics and movement and 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 betrayal. Yeah. yeah, and the NBA, it's like the season. Like, the games don't even matter. It's really about the politics behind the scenes and the shuffling and the and the, the human aspect of, like, who's going to play with who and who's pissing off who and can these people fit together. And um, and it's, like, it's really about team, creating team dynamics and, and will those dynamics work more so than it, it is about, like, you know, the nitty-gritty of the game. And so that lends itself so well, that human drama, to uh, to a show like ours, and so we're fortunate that you know, it's NBA's the Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah. all about that. But I love. You know, definitely. I mean, I, everybody has their favorites, and the funny thing is that you know when we you drop one, everyone's like, "How good is this? Does it compare to this?" I mean, every, you get you must feel that, and you must feel the pressure to keep topping yourself because you've had so many great, great episodes and great animations that it, it must feel like a lot of pressure. I mean, my favorite, the Kyrie farewell, was tremendous about the Cavaliers when he left. That was amazing. Katie's summer Odyssey when he was picking which team he was going to go to. Those are some of my favorites. Which. I mean, do you have favorites? I mean, can you say them? Which ones you like the best? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they're not like children. They don't have feelings. <laughs> their feelings. <laughs> um, Craig, do you want to say your favorite? Uh, oh, man, that's hard. I, I really love making the lottery episode this season. Um, it was just, I love the... Uh, I'm making a face because I remember that was one of the most stressful scripts. Oh, no, okay, making it was hard. But the product was, I really enjoyed because... I like just those kinds of town hall style, like everyone kind of chiming in at different points and it being more silly and lighthearted. Um, and I like the big roast of, you know, the bottom 14 teams being all together. Um, but in general, yeah, that one, I, I love ones like that. I love the, uh, the trade wins episode where we have the uh, Raptors trading for the magic because it's one of these like mid tier trades, not one of the major trades. And showing the logistics of that was really fun. And also getting a chance to explore, uh, um, I'm blanking out on the name Kyle Lowry's character, um, who, who's turned into like such a funny uh, character. I think he's kind of evolved into some our own kind of Norman. Person. Yeah, uh, uh, yes. I so as far as favorite episodes, yeah, I, I think that my favorite might be the Northern. Remember the the third one with the uh, Raptors because that one. You know, I will say that after every episode is finished before it goes live, I always hate them, and I'm like, this is bad. And people are going to hate this one. And so I'm incredibly grateful uh, when, you know, you, when you say things like how, how exciting it, this show is to you and how excited you are to watch it and how it's so good. And, and I, it never gets I, I that sort of reinforces, um, you know, what we do. And like for me, uh, you know, it also changes what episodes I like based on the feedback. So, like, for example, I was super excited about um, the Celtics episode this season where the mascot dies. And then we do like two minutes about him talking about the mascot dying. No one liked that episode. So now I don't like <laughs> it. Well, not, no one. That's not true. People liked it. It's just that it was like probably our, yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of people didn't like Lucky Dying. So I, I changed my mind on that one. I, but I think that 603 is one, the, the Raptors one. Sorry, I think 603, like anyone knows our technical production terms for it. But, like, uh, but the Raptors one uh, was one that I felt really good about. Once we came up with the idea of the trade Raptor in that episode, I was like, this thing is complete and it's weird and it's interesting. And at one point, Howard Beck told us, he's like, I think this one's kind of sad. And I'm like, that's interesting to make an episode that's actually legitimately sad. Yeah, we were trying to make it as sad as possible. Like, that was the goal. And, like, we're not capable of making something, like, fully sad. Like, it always turns, like, weird and funny. Because, like, well, you know, we had the trade raptor come out and halfway through. And so, uh, but that was, yeah, the goal that, like, you know, we're trying to get the saddest possible music to act, you know, Kyle Lowry. Things, like, really seriously. Um, yeah, we wanted to make... You know, Toronto fans cry. That was the goal. And I think we, we did that to an extent. Uh, yeah, so I think that one's probably my favorite. And given, like, the, the story of the season, it, it, it really has, has legs. Yeah. Oh, I also really like the Bucks um, from season five. 
I, I like doing conspiracy theories like Sonmaker's Age and, oh, yeah. and covering those things. And I like showing the lore of the universe. Um, so we got to do a little bit of that with the, the cave paintings that they discover. And one other I'll mention, although I know we're being uh, long trade winded here. That's a bad yeah. non-pun. Um, but uh, that references the episode title no one knows. Anyway, uh, the one episode that uh, is the uh, Colangelo uh, Raven episode. Because that one was one we were like one of the few we were able to make in like a quick turnaround thing for episode eight of last season, and everyone was like the Game of Zones guys got to do something about the Colangelo thing, and we were able to despite the fact that that story was had a lot of twists and turns with it being his wife and this and that. That one was a lot of fun and came out really funny with him with the giant collar and the and the ravens on the collar. So that part of that episode was really fun. I love how anyway, you I, I love how you yeah. make. Um, it, it's like you put you add humor and you talk about things that are happening in a lot of the commentators are afraid to and the, and the Kobe LeBron connection is I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles and I was at Kobe's final game and you could just see what every single person in that arena wore Kobe's jersey you know 24-8 I mean, they were all they're, they're, this, this section of LA is like LeBron cannot win this town over I mean Magic walks in they cheer him LeBron walks in they you know it, it, but LeBron just can't win this town Kobe was at one of his games and, and Kobe and Magic got the louder cheers than LeBron and you really hit on the idea that there's a segment of the population that doesn't matter like LeBron you're gonna have to win six titles in order for you to be better than Kobe and I loved how your whole episode and and you weaved it in about LeBron trying to get you know love me love me and like the town is like no we're not gonna love you and and I think the commentators don't bring that up like it's hard for comedy nobody on TV is like Charles Barkley's not going saying the people in LA don't love LeBron he will say that but you guys in your in your animation do it and I like the fact that you get a point across in a funny way that I think it is, you know, is impactful. Yeah, I think part of the benefit is that we do all the voices, and uh, so we don't need to rely on like the athlete relationship, maybe to uh, make the cartoon. Right, we do. We are in the, you know, we can let we sort of can let the athletes speak for themselves. Though it's really us speaking for the yeah. athletes. So, but but yeah, I mean, we try to thread some truth through these things, you know. And in that case. What we saw now, I will say that we could have gotten unlucky if the Lakers had great success. That might have might have made that episode feel a little stale. But um, but you know, but we had there's, it's it's easy to tell with with Kobe and LeBron that like the, the people who love Kobe, like they love him because because of his personality and like his killer instinct and for exactly the things that they criticize LeBron about. And so it was it seemed pretty obvious that this was like a real thread, like that like. The Kobe people just would never embrace LeBron because a lot of their identity with liking Kobe was being anti-LeBron and fine. And so that was just I we thought that was going to be a really interesting thing. And uh, and then we we were like, okay, what's like a crazy cult of that we can you know the from Game of Thrones that we can mash it up with? And then the, the Sons of the Harpy were just like perfect to do Kobeitians with to represent Kobe stands. And uh, they don't really accept Daenerys Targaryen in their city, and that's right. sort of what LeBron felt like coming into L.A. Um, but yeah, that, there's definitely some truth there, and and then we just try to make it as fun as possible. That's another episode, the the L.A. one um, with uh, the king, like with LeBron coming there. That what's what do we what's the name of that episode? King's Landing. King's, King's Landing. Landing. King's Landing. Yeah, uh, and that that's another one of our my favorites. Do you hear, do you ever hear? I mean, we're talking to Adam and Craig Malama, the founders of Game of Zones, um, on Bleacher Report. Um, but do you ever hear from the NBA players what they feel about the? You know, do, are, you, are they mad at you? Are they happy? Do, do you get feedback from the NBA players? Oh yeah, we um, we a lot of times on Twitter or like Instagram, we'll see that they like liked an episode or they'll uh, make a comment or they'll tweet it out. I know Patrick Beverly was really excited about his appearance, uh, even though we failed to get Kevin Durant to the Clippers as much as we tried. Uh, but, like, Don Maker was, like, so excited when that fucked episode came out. I think Giannis uh, did something about, or, or, no, um, uh, the process. Joel Embiid um, tweeted out when the when the Sixers episode came out. He, like, loved the episode. Lonzo Ball, when, yeah. he, when he made his dad <laughs> Wait, naked. Well, I, have, I have to say, like, one thing that's been surprising is that I'm always a little worried that players are going to be offended by it because we kind of roast everyone but continually people have uh, a good attitude about it and they really do like it and i think that the fact that it's animated and funny is disarming and you know these are guys who are used to getting crushed in the media you know like by for like with like legit criticisms or like just serious critiques and stuff like that whether they're legit or not and to see it in cartoon form is kind of fun and so 
all that we've heard has been positive feedback. I'm, I, I have a hunch that TJ Warren once subtweeted us after our son's episode when he called him a ball hog. Um, but other than that, even the players that we roasted, like Mario Hazonia, has been, they've all been good sports about it. I think, yeah, you just give someone a British accent and suddenly they're just not offended by whatever you do. But if there is a player with a British accent, then they might be offended. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's absolutely phenomenal. But I want to thank you guys so much for coming on Iron Sports. Um, it's Game of Zones. It's on Bleacher Report. Now, when when we have to wait? Like, I don't want to wait nine months, ten months. When will, when, you, uh, can you give us a tease? Well, can you just, can you, like, what are you doing now? Like, can you get, can you start to work? Like, get something done. Like, <laughs> so, so right now we're working on the champions, which is our premier leagues, like our, our champions league, sorry, champions league uh, soccer show that we do at Bleach Report. And that comes out in the fall. And so that's, that's, we've, we've had to shift gears to soccer world and, uh, and sort of rely on a lot of our experts here at Bleach Report to make, to fill us in as to what's happening there. And so that's the show we're working on now. And then we'll come back around to game of zones. In, yeah. uh, in, there, there, there is talk of a uh, possibly a Christmas special. We'll, we'll see. Uh, there, um, has to, there has to be, but I think there should be a summer special. Do us something in the summer. Do something in the summer. Oh, we have started yesterday. <laughs> yeah, here's the deal. There definitely should be. There should be 10 summer episodes, like you're saying. It's just uh, we would go insane, and then we wouldn't know what's real. Yeah, short-term um, gain, long-term <laughs> problem. Um, but – but I will say, if people seem to like it enough, we might sacrifice our own sanity and just pump these things out. Um. <laughs> well, anyway, thanks a lot, guys, for coming on Iron Sports. If you're talking to Adam and Craig Malamut, the founders of Game of Zones. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, thank you so much for having us, and thank you so much for appreciating our show and for the kind words. It yeah. really makes us uh, happy.